Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'll be your host for today on the Health and Wellness Show. It is the 4th of September, 2015. Um, Joining me in our virtual studio from all around the planet, we have a full uh, complement of our hosts today, uh, Doug, Erica, Tiffany, and Gabby. Say hi, everybody. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello. (laughs) Bonjour. Hey, we... uh, Today we're going to be talking about alternative uh, health modalities, um, alternative medicine uh, in comparison to big pharma. Uh, We're going to be talking about acupuncture, homeopathy, herbalism, uh, Bach flower remedies, or what did we say it was, batch or back? Batch. 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 And orthomolecular medicine and uh, a couple of other things. Um, So we'll be going over a, a wide variety of topics. This is a general overview of alternative medicine. We thought it would be good to um, to cover some of these broader topics today. Uh, I kind of want to start the show off by just saying our general disclaimer, just to avoid the, uh, the hot water and the, the lawyers' guns and money, um, that we are not your doctors. Um, we are not intending to give you medical advice um, you know, some of us here are, are medical professionals, but we are not your doctors. And so um, we encourage you to do your own research, but we also encourage you to talk to your own practitioner about things that you need done or questions that you might have. Um, find somebody in your area who knows what they're talking about, who you trust, um, and basically don't take the things that we talk about and just kind of um, go off and, and, and try them out uh, even with alternative medicine or with natural medicine, you need to be really cautious. Um, you know, things may seem like because they're natural, you can just do as much as you want, and that is not true. That is patently not true. Um, you need to be very careful with a lot of these things, even with vitamin C. Um, so uh, just having said that, let's get into the show. We'll start with some connecting the dots, some of the week, some of the um, health news. And uh, Gabby, do you want to get us started with this article about histamine? Sure. It's about an, art- an article that um, Jill Carnahan from jillcarnahan.com wrote, and the title is Histamine Intolerance Because of Your Problems. And the reason I want to cover this article is because a lot of people in the forum have have problems with hives and skin rashes, very itchy skin rashes, with the low-carb diet, with a ketogenic diet. And this could be one potential reason as to why. Basically, histamine is uh, it's classified as a bioactive amine. It basically um, comes from the breakdown of amino acids. Uh, you can find amino acids in protein, and that's why when uh, people have histamine issues, they are highly advised to eat only fresh meat. Because when the process of spoiled food, you know, spoiled food starts, all the bacteria from the gastrointestinal tract of the animal um, leaches out and starts to break down the protein. That's why the softer the meat, so to speak, the more, you know, uh, the less fresh 
and um, so bacteria breaks down the amino acid, in this case specifically histidine, and histamine is produced. And a lot of people have issues with it. Uh, also with fermented foods, where generally like bacteria are added to foods to ferment them. Usually normal people don't have a problem with these, but people who are histamine intolerant will have a big issue with it. And symptoms from histamine reaction, you know, it ranges in severity, but it's basically histamine. Think of something that makes you itchy, but it could also be flushing of the face, headaches, like a brownie nose, dizziness, anxiety, uh, abdominal cramps, and in, in most severe cases, it's like the basic, like the basic um, emerg allergy emergency, like with bronchoconstriction, which which is difficult to breathing, your tongue swells, and you break out in hives, and so forth. So the reason why some people uh, are very intolerant to histamine is because they lack the enzymes that break down histamine or there is an overproduction of these enzymes. And this could be genetically related, like, like we talked in a previous show about the MTHFR mutation. People with these genetic polymorphisms and these genetic mutations have lower enzymes that break down histamine. Also, they could be lacking some vitamins, and also because they could be taking some medication that increases histamine, or most commonly because there is a bacterial overgrowth in the gut. It could be bacterial overgrowth or yeast overgrowth, you know. And what happens is that some people on the ketogenic diet, on a very, very low-fat diet, they they have trouble adjusting to the diet because the bacteria, um, some of the good bacteria thrive on fiber. And even though you don't need like excessive amount of fiber, you know, the restriction of the ketogenic diet, some, uh, some people take it too, too far away or they are very, you know, they usually need more carbs than, than you know, than what it's, um, generally suggested. So they start to break out in hives, and it could, this could be a transitional period, or actually they need to add more carbs in order to feed their their good bacteria, but it has to be good carbs. So that's one way to address it. And the other way to address it is with um, anti natural antihistaminics like quercetin, vitamin C, vitamin B6, there is also the, the enzyme that specifically breaks down histamine. It is sold as a supplement, as a medication, which can be taken. And foods that are very rich in histamine have to be avoided, like uh, processed foods, like cured sausage products, alcoholic beverages, um, chocolate, and some spices, you know, like cayenne, nutmeg, and so forth. So it's really um, a good article to check out if you think you have this problem. It will give you some ideas of what to check or what to address. So, yes, that's about it. So you shouldn't just start popping Benadryl because that's an antihistamine. Yeah, yeah, the vinegar you said? Yeah. 
Yeah, sometimes the vinegar helps to digest the meat, and sometimes that's good. But people with histamine intolerance, yeah, vinegar can can produce some hives. Um, there are some typical foods, and it's always like the same in each person, like pickles, citrus fruits. It's a very common one, but you know, you know not yeah, not vinegar or Benadryl. Oh, Benadryl, Benadryl. <laughs> Benadryl. Yes, histamine is found in um, in lower concentrations in stomach acid to help with digest food, and uh, it is blocked by you know proton inhibitors like omeprazole, and it is also blocked by Benadryl, and also mm. similar drugs like histamine blockers. And uh, I think that on an emergency basis, like if you really have very bad hives, that will, that will make you crazy, itchy, crazy. I would just mm-hmm. take the benefit just like, you know, get done with it, just cut the vicious cycle because if you keep scratching yourself, it's going to release more instantly. So sometimes, you know, a little bit of drugs don't hurt. <laughs> <clears throat> One uh, natural antihistamine actually is uh, quercetin. I know that there's a lot of people who have uh, success with um, some of their uh, envi- environmental allergies. Um, that can be mm-hmm. quite helpful. Um, taking uh, it, you have to take quite high doses of it, but uh, and you have to kind of do a loading mm-hmm. dose. Sorry? In the article, they suggest three to six grams daily of quercetin. I thought, wow, yeah. that's a lot. It well, is a lot. Quercetin. Yeah. Uh, this is the dose that works the best, and they say that the powdered version of quercetin works best. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah Doug, how do you spell that in case anybody wants to look it up? Uh, quercetin is Q-U-E-R-C-I-T-I-N. Quercetin. Cool. I think. Yeah. <laughs> to ditch the Doritos since they're not part of the diet. (laughs) And I actually found something that's a little bit more um, on topic. So if if our listeners are interested in Doritos and their addictive behavior, just uh, uh, type it into SOT and you can find some uh, uh, rather disturbing information about Doritos and uh, additives. I um, found this article that kind of went along good with our topic today called Good Medicine, Um, Do as Much Nothing as Possible. Um, It was carried on Green Med Info by Sayer G on August 28th. And basically, um, he had a pretty interesting opening quote from Samuel Shem from the House of God. The delivery of good medicine care is to do as much nothing as possible. I'm assuming that's where he came up with the the name or the title for its article, but basically the article talks about how medicine is undergoing an existential crisis today. Its core principle to help and not hurt is failing to manifest. He says patients are suffering, doctors are suffering, and the only exuberant party on the battlefield against disease 
that's profiting basically is big pharma. We've covered that extensively in other shows. He says that the entire system is on the precipice of collapse, and if not for economic reasons alone, then certainly for ethical and intellectual ones. The irony is that the system has become so ineffective and dangerous that avoiding medical treatment except for emergencies has become one, if not the best, healthcare strategy you can implement to protect yourself and your health and well-being. He goes on to talk about in this article about the cancer industry, and and we have covered that in previous shows as well, Um, you know, just all the different organizations that are associated with the cancer industry and how it's it's become big money and um, this whole idea of um, preventable, you know, cancer research and questionable diagnosis. And and then, like I mentioned, the the organizations, the Breast Cancer Foundation, and how how it just is not really addressing the issue, and um, and then he talks about a, a journal that was just or an editorial that was released called "It Is Over Treatment, Not Over Diagnosis," that points to the real issue be, behind the epidemic of cancer, and. Um, and overdiagnosis, you know, and you know it's kind of interesting to connect the dots with that. We see that that with the HPV vaccine, the Gardasil vaccine, whole paranoia mm. uh, giving this vaccine to young children, you know, possibly prevent, you know, cervical cancer later in life. So he goes on to talk about how overtreatment doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, these int- industries produce treatments, and they also create and support awareness campaigns that use fear to corral the population into the screening, early screening, and again, breast cancer and things like that. Um, and then kind of at the end of the article, he draws his illusions about how modern medicine has become an Orwellian institution uh, with detecting cancer early, the biomedical equivalent of the thought police detecting crime before it even happens. Um, and I, I just thought it was a really good point that he made. He also said uh, medicine has adopted the metaphorics of another powerful global force, the military-industrial complex with the cancer prevention being equal to striking first, similar to Bush's doctrine of preemptive war to secure peace. (laughs) And then um, the precautionary principle is co-opted and inverted from its true meaning. Instead of doing no harm, unnecessary medical intervention is considered the only nonviolent solution, even when the collateral damage is so great that the patient often dies from the violence of treatment with me- weapons of mass destruction grade radioisotopes and chemicals and not the condition. Mm. So I thought that would tie in good with our discussion today because, you know, not to, like he says in the article, you know, if you a bone or you have, you know, a staph infection, doctor, you know, pharmacy, you know, Antibiotics, those are all good, but this whole kind of medical industry that is profiting off of people and illness and and really, again, um, not doing no harm. So, <laughs> mm. 
It's corrupted from the top. This is an article written by Sayer G, right? It yes. sounds like Sayer G. It sounds like Sayer G because he, no, I love his uh, research. He has mm-hmm. uncovered a lot of research on breast cancer screening, how it's pretty much like useless and dangerous to promote cancer and that a lot of people getting diagnosed and then mutilated because they basically cut your breasts and give you like, you know, chemo therapy and, you know, the untold suffering that all these overdiagnosing, the same with prostate cancer, it's just like crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also this whole kind of new approach with uh, doing massive hysterectomies on women mm-hmm. and removing mm-hmm. all their female organs because of a, a possible cancer cell in the uterus, you know, and again, going back to the HPV thing, you know, it's just frightening to watch. And as you said, Gabby, people suffering emotionally under the stress of the possibility that this could happen, you know, and then coming, you know, I've had a few friends that go back a second time and, oh, sorry, it was a false diagnosis, you know, after mm. weeks of them freaking out about the fact that they could have, you know, some terrible disease, you know. Yeah, that happened to my mother. She got like a false positive on a mammogram and she totally lost it and freaked out and mm-hmm. was crying and everything. And then she went back for a second test and I'm like, whoops, that was nothing. We don't know what that was. <laughs> Sorry for making you suffer for the whole two weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, really interesting yeah, about like, the... Um... The, the celebrity um, connection with a lot of the, the kind of the celebrities getting these, uh, um, you know, they, they get the mastectomy even though they don't have uh, any cancer, but there's a, a mm-hmm. genetic marker for it. So that that was seemed to be really um, being promoted in the press. You know, I know Angelina Jolie had it done and uh, uh, what's her mm-hmm. name? Uh, Christina Applegate had it done as well. And they, they got all this kind of press for, for having these, um, completely unnecessary surgeries um, rather than addressing the fact that despite the fact that there's a, a genetic marker, there's still lots that you can do to avoid actually getting cancer. But uh, no, they wanted to, to kind of promote this, uh, this, this uh, like, you know, just mutilate themselves essentially as a means of prevention. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really interesting that that seemed to be getting a lot of press. It creates so much hysteria. I made a rotation in the radiology department where women got screened with ultrasound for breast cancer or to find out what a nodule was, what's about, you know, a lump here and there, if it was benign or if it had signs of malignancy. And with no exception, all women were absolutely nervous, like, you know, they were like, what if it's bad? It's crazy. Just multiply that by millions of millions of women around the world mm-hmm. by just that mm-hmm. issue alone that is, you know, just scaremongering, basically. Yeah. Not and to the mention same the thing whole goes stress for all connection. these men in their, their 60s and 70s. They keep testing their PSA levels, their prostate uh, antigen mm-hmm. levels. And if they did have cancer, it would be so slow going. They'd probably die of natural causes before they even develop prostate cancer, and yet they're getting their mm-hmm. prostates ripped out and pretty much having mm-hmm. their manhood taken away from them. Mm-hmm. The absurd thing is that even an expert panel pronounced themselves on that, that there is no need to make these screening of prostate cancer with PSA. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's um, 
overdiagnosed with people and causes unnecessary suffering doesn't mean anything from a scientific point of view. But it's so ingrained in people with medical doctors that we just keep automatically um, test for it, you know, even though it's useless. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's like based on the overdiagnosing and all the alternative remedies or alternative therapies don't get a word, you know, and all these craziness. Mm-hmm. It's enough to make you yeah, ill. I think, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think to the uh, speaking to the topic of our our show today, that you know, um, the point here that we're talking about is not that modern medical advancements are not good. Um, you know, that things like you you can get screened for certain diseases. You can find these things out ahead of time. Um, you can have surgery now without getting an infection. You know, things like that. Um, but just that the establishment as a whole is kind of like a runaway train, and um, mm-hmm. it's it's hard it's hard when you talk about this stuff to not fall into kind of black and white thinking, um, but to pull back and dissect the issue and say, well, here are the things that are negative and here are the things that are positive, and you know, cancer screening uh, can be good, it can be very beneficial, and at the same time, it can also be overdone. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's about finding a balance and also keeping yourself um, sane. It's it's almost like a sort of mass OCD that's that's taking over people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what you say is very important, Jonathan, because it's the basic fact of human psychology. We'll have co- we have cognitive biases, and we must be always on guard. You know, with um, healthy questions that uh, mind uh, mindset. You know questioning things, um, and uh, researching, comparing results, networking, because, you know, data that is shared throughout, you know, a whole network and is better consistent results, it has a higher chance to be objective. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not black and white thinking because, like, I was joking the other day, well, what if in a thousand years' time the alternative medicine community will be the equivalent of Big Pharma from today? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, to that point, it, it's unfortunately I think we're actually seeing some um, some foreshadowing of that with you know a lot of the like the recent issue with um, supplements being sold at Walmart that were uh, either tainted or were full of placebo or had like, you know, 0.1% of the active ingredients um, mm-hmm. and things like that, you know, it, it is unfortunate, but I think that, you know, you also have, you have to watch out for that wherever you're looking. There's a lot of natural mm-hmm. um, companies that sell natural supplements that even their products are not um, preferable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see that in the big food industry too with this whole ongoing debate about organic versus conventional agriculture. And, you know, you, you go back and you look at all these companies that are buying up these small natural food companies and they're selling their natural products or their organic products and, you know, organic is three times as much and people think, oh, well, if it says organic, it's better for me. But then you start to look into the companies that own, you know, these these other companies and it's like Coca-Cola or Kellogg's or, you know what I mean? So they're not dumb. They, they see that the it's Big money. I mean, it's a what is that like a multi-billion-dollar industry now, Doug? The whole health food. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, health easily. Store. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. It, you, you see it in both the supplements and in the food industry. It's like people, uh, specifically with the supplements, like you were saying, Jonathan, about the Walmart stuff and uh, Costco vitamins and things like that. And, you know, people, people, you know, are getting a little bit more educated and realizing they maybe need some natural supplements and stuff, but then they go for this dirt cheap garbage, essentially. <laughs> And, you know, I, I get people all the time in the store who are like, I'm like, yeah, you might want to, you know, try this. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I've got some of that from Costco. And it's like, well, <laughs> um, you might want to, you know, look at the quality of your supplement there. Um, you know, these, these, you definitely do get what you pay for when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, and one thing at Costco is the fish oil. You know, a lot of people are into mm. fish oil now, and the Costco brand has, GMO oils in it, you know, canola yeah. oil, yeah. or you know, so that is so unfair. It's like selling reading labels. <laughs> it's yeah. like selling their trash as supplements. Like here, oh, mm-hmm. it's the GMO or mercury. Oh, let's sell it official. People will buy it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, like as one example, I know the multi multivitamins, you know, you see uh, calcium or the calcium supplements in and of themselves. I mean, in these cheaper brands, they're grinding up limestone and sticking it in a capsule. And it's like, here's your, here's your calcium. It's like, yeah, great. How, how well absorbed yeah. is that going to be? And then they're surprised when they have these studies that find that people who take calcium supplements are getting, you know, uh, atherosclerosis and calcium deposits in their, their tissues. It's like, well, what do you expect if you're taking something like that? You're eating rocks. Like, that's not a good thing. <laughs> or seashells. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or seashells, yeah. Yeah, well, on the, it goes uh, with everything the... that you, you have to do your own research and use your own discernment. And if you don't have any discernment, you better get some discernment real quick because mm-hmm. just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's all good. You can just take whatever you want and take as much as you want because people will say to me, like, if they tried some supplement for this or that, especially like for weight loss, and they're like, oh, you should try this. And I'm like, well, what is it? And they'll list some herb or something. They say, it's all natural. And I'm thinking to myself, well, so is cocaine, but I don't want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, um, yeah. definitely important for people to uh, to look up what they're, what they're taking in. Like on the fish oil thing, I wish I had the primary source here for this, but I don't. So I want to be clear that I'm not 100% on this. But I would encourage people to check it out, that um, there was a story going around a while back that a lot of the the fish oil that was being sold, you know, in the larger chain stores had actually been taken from fish in the Gulf after the, uh, the BP oil mm-hmm. spill because there were so many fish that died that they just pulled them up and harvested all this oil. Um, Jesus. So. Again, just to be clear that I'm not 100% that that's true, so I would encourage you to look into it if you're really curious. Um, but, you know, call, like if you're taking something, call the company and be like, where does this come mm-hmm. from? And if they can't tell you, don't take it because they should they should at least be willing to tell you, well, you know, we don't know, but we'll look into it. You know, but if they're just like stonewalling you about where their, their products come from, don't take it. Look for something else. Yeah, mm-hmm. and look for third-party testing as well. The the best quality fish oil uh, supplements are using uh, third party testing, um, which is something that you want to look for. A lot of, uh, the best companies are doing their own testing as well as using third party testing. You know, finding out exactly what's in there. I mean, you can get good quality fish oil that doesn't have mercury, doesn't have any of these other toxic, um, you know, ocean uh, pollutions, pollutants in them. 
So yeah, I mean, you just you got to do your research. You got to you got to look at what what the company that you're taking is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go to our next thing here. Um, Doug, do you want to tell us about mandatory vaccines in Canada? Sounds like Canada's kind of picking up on this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The uh, the CMA or the Canadian Medical Association had its annual meeting in Halifax uh, at the end of August. Um, it's an 80,000 member group, and it's heavily influenced by the American Medical Association in the um, in the states. Um, so it looks like they're uh, looking to start pushing mandatory vaccination um, on all children who are registering for school or daycare. Um, the, the children, the parents are going to have to show proof that their children have been vaccinated. Um, so they're voting on this. Uh, it says under the guidance of some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and in addition to calling for proof of vaccination, the CMA board is endorsing a multi-year plan to increase vaccination rates. Um, it says the most extreme pro-vaccine lobbying groups, those that are strictly endorsing that all vaccines are safe and effective for all people all the time, by force if necessary, is now part of the extended network of medical mafia matrix. Um, so it goes on to say, it, it, the author then compares it to what um, happened in uh, California with their uh, recent Senate Bill 277, um, which was to uh, you know apply uh, to public and private schools uh, and children uh, enrolling in daycare, uh, mandatory uh, vaccination. Um, so it seems that Canadians will soon be deprived of their medical right to informed consent, ab- abrogating uh, constitutional guarantees under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms of that nation. Um, it's an aggressive attempt to disempower parents from deciding which, if any, vaccines a child will get and when they should get them. Uh, so there's a group in Canada called uh, Vaccine Choice Canada, um, and they provided a fully referenced letter to the CMA. Um, and if you look at that article, they have a link to it there so you can read the article. Um, it details both the legal and scientific issues surrounding mandatory vaccination. So it's not uh, just hype hysteria. It really is very well referenced. Um, so they call in the article for um, writing to the CMA, if you are Canadian, um, to state that uh, um, it, it is uh, – basically to say it's a bad idea to um, to institute this uh, mandatory vaccination for the following reasons. Uh, first of all, it's illegal to mandate, mandate vaccines in Canada without personal and religious exemptions uh, due to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, further, they say mandate, mandating vaccines without personal or religious exemptions would breach the following laws, codes, and conventions on informed consent which is the right to understand the risks of medical treatments and the right to choose to refuse them. So that includes the Canadian medical law, provincial regulations such as Ontario's Health Care Consent Act, the CMA's own medical code of ethics, so it actually goes against that, as well as international conventions to which Canada is a signatory, including the Nuremberg Code, the Helsinki Accords, and the UNESCO Universal Declaration of Bioethics and Human Rights. Um, as a matter of justice, policy of mandatory vaccination, which carries medical risk, must, must be accompanied by vaccine injury compensation programs. Unlike every other Western nation except Russia, Canada does not have such a national compensation program. So, of course, this just completely ties um, the hands of, of parents. You know, if their child does have some kind of negative effect to the vaccine, they have absolutely no recourse. There's no compensation program in place. So uh, the idea of uh, putting forth mandatory vaccination and then 
you know, completely just washing your hands of the entire thing. Yes, we forced you to have this vaccination, but now that you've had, your child's had a negative reaction to it, there's absolutely nothing you can do and there's no compensation available. So very enraging, um, but kind of a sign of the times, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to kind of add to that, just a little, again, connecting the dots, um, in Los Angeles, when school started last week, they pulled over 100 kids and put them in an mm-hmm. auditorium because they claimed that they didn't have the proper paperwork or that they their exemptions were wrong. And um, there was it was on the Science of Times Health and Wellness section about how this mom said it was just so upsetting because it turned out that all these kids did have the proper documentation. The school Mm. just hadn't bothered to look at it and that they basically pulled all these children and put them in an auditorium and the parents had to come pick them up the first day of school. So talk about, you know, fear-mongering and a sign of the times, like these these parents were in compliance under their legal right with have exemptions, but the school, you know, for whatever reason, chose to make examples of them. And one mom said her daughter was, you know, so excited to go to school and then came home crying, like, what did I do wrong? I'm, you know, I must mm-hmm. have done something wrong, you know, based on, on the parents' choice. And so that was just a little blurb that was just in one school in L.A. or one district, but it, it really sets the template for what's going to be coming down the line. Good girl. And it's also the fear mongering, you know, wraps up to other countries where, you know, uh, vaccina- vaccinations are not mandatory because then you hear stories about schools or even, you know, childcare centers where they ask for a certification that the child was vaccinated and he or she has no diseases. And, you know, and some of the doctors, you know, are puzzled because in this country, you know, it's not mandatory to have vaccinations, and you know, and it's confidential if you have a disease, but you don't need to disclose it, you know, to the to the school or well. Mm-hmm. In any case, uh, so it's more like fear mongering and the, the psychopathology of you know of that you know comes from the top that feeds the criteria in all people. Yeah. Yeah. The. Uh... The hypocrisy is also something that strikes me like, so as an example, insurance, it's federally mandated that you have to have insurance mainly because if you run into somebody else's car, then, you know, they they have an opportunity to be compensated for the accident that you have caused. Now, I know that there's many more causes, you know, many more reasons for insurance, and a lot of it is a racket, but I think the general principle has to do with that, that you're responsible for causing harm to someone else so that they can get compensated. Um, and yet, like you said, Doug, that they're, they have no compensation program for any mm-hmm. harm done by these vaccines. So they're like, you know, you have to get this, but we don't have to do it. It's kind of symptomatic yeah. of the uh, the nature of, of the government as it exists today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really, though, so, there's no amount of compensation that will uh, take the place of your child being damaged. I mean, it doesn't matter how much no. money they give you. Of course, it'll help with their medical bills and that, but it's still, it, I can't even describe it. Yeah. <laughs> but I know where it hurt for life, if not yeah. dead. 
from these vaccines. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. Well, let's see. Next up on our uh, our connecting the dots here, um, I have a little article on the uh, health and wellness section on SOP. It's a short interview with Joel Salatin. Uh, A lot of our listeners might be familiar with Joel Salatin. He runs Polyface Farms in Virginia. Um, He's been in a lot of documentaries, uh, notably Food, Inc. If anybody has seen that, I recommend watching that if you haven't seen it. Um, He's also author of a lot of books, including Folks to St. Normal. Uh, he's a really cool guy. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> and he, the, this article is called Joel Salatin's Secrets to Reconnecting with Your Food. Um, and he talks a little bit about his farming practices and stuff. And this part that I thought was really interesting is, um, so the interviewer says, can you please explain your concept of true farming and how it reestablishes the sacredness of food for you and your consumers? And Salatin says, we all have benchmarks of truth and value. If it doesn't heal, then it's not acceptable. If it causes harm, then it's problematic. We don't want to deplete mm-hmm. the commons. We want to increase the commons. We want to protect all the value that is in the soil from the earthworm factory to the bulls and the moles. The truth in farming, if it doesn't balance out somewhere, there is a lie. One of the biggest lies is that food is cheap. It is a lie that dishonors life. In regards mm-hmm. to the sacredness of food, if you don't view the pigness of the pig or the cowness of the cow as important, and only view it as a sack of protoplasmic protein, then you have already committed a sacrilege. You cheapen mm-hmm. the life that has been sacrificed to sustain your own. How we make this sacrifice sacred is by honoring and respecting the life. And so it's, that, that was really cool. And it's interesting how he runs his farm. Everything supports um, something else. You know, the chickens fertilize the grass. The grass is eaten by the cows. They use um, snow melt and rainwater to water the fields. Everything kind of like goes together. Um, and the the last part of this uh, interview, the, the interviewer says, what are some specific ways people who live in cities can participate in their own local food chains? And Salatin says, I have three ways. Uh, one, turn off your TV and find a food source. So many people mm-hmm. say that they don't have time. Well, you have time to watch TV. Shut it off. Find your farmers <laughs> to your local CSA or farmer's market. Many farmers want the additional one to two customers. So if you invest the money you spend on HDTV on finding your food source, then your life would change. Um, mm-hmm. num- <clears throat> number two, he says, get into your kitchen. can't have a food chain with integrity if you are not willing to participate. You can't have a connection with your plate if you don't have a connection with your producers. Um, and then number three, he says, do something yourself. Pickle something or get two chickens. Uh, they are so much more useful than exotic birds or boa constrictors. They are a great role mm. model for teens. They wake up early, work hard, turning trash into treasure, and go to bed early. And he mm-hmm. said the most important thing, though, is to do something to connect viscerally with the awesomeness of life. Um, mm-hmm. There's not like the the phrasing and the way he says some of this stuff is really powerful and it's cool. Like, you know, we do, I think, get caught up a lot in uh, the idea that well, I just, you know, I go to the store and I get some burger or I get a steak or I get a chicken or whatever and then I cook it. Or you just go to a restaurant, you know, you think about that. You don't, you're not involved in the process at all. You just served your food by someone else and you eat it and then you're done. Um, you know, and of course, then on the extreme end of that, it's processed food where you just take it out of a package and shove it in your mouth. Um, <laughs> so I think that we're, we're so far removed from the actual source of the food um, that it's, it's really important to 
uh, respect where it comes from. And uh, yeah. it reminds me, reading this this article uh, reminded me of a story that I heard recently about a guy who was talking about uh, he had gone to a sushi restaurant and had experienced what it's like to eat a live prawn. And that uh, mm-hmm. was probably something that I, I don't know that I would try, um, especially <laughs> after hearing this story. But he said it was so powerful and so unsettling because it was the first time he had ever killed anything with his own teeth. You know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, you know, like, going through the process of this made him realize that, wow, now, you know, when I eat a steak, I'm going to realize and think about that cow that it came from and the life that it led and how it died, you know, how did it live well, did it die quickly, um, how, you know, was it respected or was it just, you know, shoved into a pen and grown with hormones um, so that that experience for him, even though it was unsettling and really kind of dramatic experience, caused him now to think more about where his food comes from. So. Um, I think that's an important reminder for all of us. Yeah. Oh, and Joel Salkin. Yeah, Joel Salkin is really great. He's uh, if if you haven't heard him or read any of his stuff, definitely at least Google his name and, and look up some of his videos on YouTube, or check out one of his books. Um, he's a really really powerful speaker and highly intelligent. Um, really speaks mm-hmm. well and actually goes through the technical aspects of how he farms. So you can even take those tips and just use them in your backyard. Um, so I think it's pretty cool. Um, so let's see, for our, our last uh, connecting the dots for today, Tiff, do you want to tell us about this smart pill? Sounds like the FDA approved the smart pill. So, yeah, we'll all be smart. Yeah, I guess a lot of people want to be smarter. <laughs> so the article is called Smart Smart pill approved by FDA for healthy people with little to no scientific evidence of improved cognitive function. Mm-hmm. So the drug is called modafinil. Uh, the name brand is called Provigil, and it's made by a drug company called Teva. Um, mm-hmm. It's traditionally used as a medicine to improve wakefulness in adults who are very sleepy due to having narcolepsy, obstructive sleep apnea, or shift work disorder, otherwise known as having to do the work shift, the night shift. <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe they made a, a disorder out of that, but anyway. That's unbelievable. So <laughs> the researchers, uh, they reviewed 24 studies on this drug, modafinil. Uh, the studies were carried out between 1990 and 2015, and they found that it appeared to improve cognitive function. Uh, some of the studies showed gains in flexible thinking, uh, increasing people's abilities to combine information or to cope with novelty. And they said that in the studies, the drug didn't seem to influence creativity either way. And how it works is by increasing the brain's level of uh, dopamine and norepinephrine to boost concentration and alertness. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the snags they ran into when they were researching this drug is that the improvement wasn't seen every time, it wasn't seen on every test, and it wasn't seen in every person. Um, they found that the studies failed to show any enhancement in areas of attention, learning, and memory, and they only used mm-hmm. about 30 participants in each group. And the type of uh, cognitive tests that they used, <laughs> they um, they used them the tests that they use are more appropriate for people with neuropsychiatric illnesses like uh, schizophrenia, depression, and autism, or neurological disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So 
people without these disorders, they would perform well in those cognitive tests anyway, so how could they tell that it was the modafinil that made a difference? And another big thing is that the researchers only gave the study participants the drug one time, so they don't know what the long-term effects are. So I was mm-hmm. looking into this well, before and went on to the, the drug's website, and of course there's like a laundry list of side effects like serious rashes, mental health symptoms like depression, anxiety, hallucinations, uh, extreme increases in activity, uh, like mania, thoughts of suicide, aggressive behavior, and other mental problems. There's also like heart problems, abnormal heartbeat, um, headache, back pain, nausea, feeling stuffy, diarrhea. Uh, they say to stop taking Provigil if you have skin rash, hives, sores in your mouth, uh, blisters and peeling skin, trouble swallowing okay. and breathing. Yellowing <laughs> 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 of the eyes uh, of the skin and whites of the eyes of dark urine. So basically it sounds like it can really screw up your liver. And I looked some more. <laughs> um, people are taking this. I think in the article they said that more college students than ever are taking drugs like Provigil or Adderall or Ritalin, which are commonly ADHD drugs, to kind of like study and concentrate so they can take their exams. Mm-hmm. And also uh, looked on to Dave Asprey, the Bulletproof exec, mm-hmm. um, the uh, Bulletproof coffee fame, and he had been taking, I don't know if he still is, but at one point he was taking it, he wrote a blog post about it. Um, so there is definitely a buzz on the web about modafinil. Um, there's a lot of comments underneath Dave Asprey's blog post about people saying it makes them feel like they're constantly in the zone and they don't need to sleep as much and they can get a lot of stuff done. I think mm. it's a shortcut. I think it's kind of like cheating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think it sounds like robotic. It's what? Sounds like robotic behavior, like, you know. Yeah. Just basically concentrate on doing stuff like mechanically and, you know, uh-huh. that's it. One guy said uh, if he goes too high on his dose and if he's not careful, he'll spend like 18 hours just looking up stuff on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it's just great. It sounds like, it sounds like cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it I wonder like if it has the same. Me. Yeah. Legal cocaine, I mean, that is. Right. Well, it's just, I, you it's know, so it's, funny. Oh, go ahead, Doug, sorry. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to say it's so funny that, um, you know, that, that Dave Asprey would be doing this kind of thing. You know, I usually think that he's kind of pretty on the ball with with a lot of stuff. But, like, yeah. I mean, I guess it's because he's always into, like, kind of these different hacks that you can do, you know, mm-hmm. ways to kind of improve your performance and stuff. So. I don't know. It seems pretty non, like you know, non-discriminating to me. Like he, he really should be kind of uh, use some more discretion on these kinds of things because we we know from our research how you can boost brain function. You know, get on mm-hmm. the ketogenic diet. Um, you know, you can use different supplements and stuff that help. Uh, you know, using L-carnitine to get uh, more fuel into your mitochondria and like even using things like ginkgo biloba or um, or ginseng or something along those lines. Like all those things are natural ways to kind of improve your performance, improve your intelligence, and it doesn't come with a side of, like, suicidal thoughts. So it's like, <laughs> it, just, yeah. it just seems so so ridiculous. Like, it's just so, uh, 
you know, it, it, it's th- this this shortcut mentality is so endemic. Like people just want to be able to take a pill and solve all their problems. It just seems ridiculous. Yeah, and the funny the thing is that uh, Dave Asprey does all that stuff because you know he has all these products and stuff like super glutathione and this and that, and he's always mm-hmm. hacking himself. But he doesn't seem to really care much. Like I was reading through his post, and, it, and he said that the side effects there aren't any, or they're very mild, or don't sound mm. very mild to me. Maybe he just hasn't experienced any, and he's a healthy guy, so he can handle it. But I would be cautious. Mm. Yeah, of taking the easiest way out. You know, it's not only the system, mm-hmm. but it's also like people are so lazy. I mean, come on, mm-hmm. <laughs> we just want results like that. Mm-hmm. There's one thing, yeah. this, you know, like people people call it um, biohacking, you know, or like, you know, life hacking or whatever. But I've heard with Dave Asprey, I've heard the term biohacking. And I, I mm-hmm. think it's interesting. You know, I'm 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 all for experimentation, you know, but and if you if if any person wants to make their own choices about their own body and try something out and they're aware of the potential consequences and things like that. That's fine. I have nothing to do with the choices that they make. However, like he shouldn't be putting it out there, like, hey, all you guys should try this too. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a, mm-hmm. a kind of a subtle difference there. And um, you know, you need to be really careful with this kind of stuff. And it's clearly, you know, again to our topic today, the, the Moldenafil and uh, other kind of smart drugs are clearly just another push by the uh, the pharma companies to make money on a new product. You know, yeah. and they're not out there saying. They're not out there saying, you know, L-tyrosine will boost your, your dopamine and, um, uh, uh, shoot, what's the other one for tyrosine? I know it boosts dopamine. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that, you know, that it, incre- that it can increase your energy, increase your cognitive function. Like Doug said, you know, you can change your diet um, and you can use certain natural supplements to, to achieve this. Well, the, the pharma companies aren't telling you that. They're not putting that information out there. They make a product that's really dangerous, and they're like, here, try this one. Um, and I know that's just kind of a simplistic example, but it, uh, in my mind, it's it's pretty clearly a, a scam. Mm. Yeah. Well, that, uh, I guess that kind of leads us into our topic for uh, today, talking about alternative medicine. Um and uh you know the uh the benefits that can be had um and i i guess i wanted to start off with a discussion about uh <clears throat> where where did we end up with this word alternative you know why is mm-hmm. alternative medicine considered alternative because it's it's not really it's the it's the way things have been done for thousands of years um and i i almost wonder if it came out of the uh the push the big pharma push and how these companies have grown so massively over the last, you know, 60 to 100 years um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that natural medicine has now become called uh, alternative and it, it's gotten such a stigma. I mean, I, I can't even count the time, you know, the number of times that I've gotten into discussions with people either in person or on Facebook or wherever um, where you just mention the word supplement and they're like, you're a quack, you know, yeah. like this is BS. <laughs> Just go to your doctor. Give me a call. Yeah. For me, yeah. there's only one medicine, you know. Yes, everybody, you know, talks about alternative medicine, integrative medicine, conventional medicine. 
Mm-hmm. I've seen it one time, you know, <laughs> several different applications, and and it's just a problem of corruption in this science that you know that don't you know what you said that somebody mentioned a supplement and said okay that's crazy then you know something like must be shot up or or something it's just mm-hmm. that type of you know laziness of cognitive biases that just you know ruins every single science you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's even uh, amazing, like, what is considered, quote, unquote, alternative or, you know, you know, the woo-woo kind of stuff. Like, you, you look at, um, you know, things like chelation therapy or diet recommendations, uh, sorry, recommendations, you know, uh, suggestions for meditation or body work or any of these kinds of things. Like, doctors actually aren't allowed in a lot of cases to even recommend this kind of stuff. Like, I mean, you know, chelation therapy, that, that just seems so, um, you know, mainstream. Like, it doesn't seem like something that would be kind of wacky or, or out there. But in, in actually in Kentucky, I was reading an article that says in Kentucky, doctors actually aren't even allowed to mention chelation therapy. You know, they, they're not allowed to even, like, you know, suggest that it exists, you know, or else they face some kind of reprimand. It's really crazy. And, you know, I, I, I was, uh, you know, on Facebook the other day, which is always a, a bad thing to do, but I was on Facebook and um, I, I saw this discussion. One guy who's a friend of mine is having a lot of back problems. So he's like, I'm going to go try um, acupuncture. And the amount of, like, derision and, and you know, he was being called, like, a woo-woo fairy and, you know, why don't you go try some witchcraft instead and, like, all these other kinds of things, you know. And I'm like, it's acupuncture. You know, there's so many studies out there that actually show that this is, you know, that this is, is beneficial in many situations. Like, it, I just couldn't, I couldn't get my head around this, this mentality, this idea that this is, you know, that, you know it's, it's equivalent to, you know, getting leeches. Or you know, uh, you know, treating treating body humors or something like that. It's like no, there's a lot of evidence that this actually works. But these these people were just like, they're so closed-minded and black and white about it. And I think you know that's by design. I think it really it's it's been painted with this brush. It's like it's all new age airy fairy kind of stuff. Like you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray with some crystals or something. It's it's just insane. Yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience with. Part of the um, Go ahead, yeah. Oh, sorry. That, um, just saying that I've, I've had the same experience with uh, chiropractic. You know, even just mm-hmm. and that I have a, I have a hard time um, really grokking how that is like a, a quack science in a lot of people's minds. You're like, you know, oh, your neck is sore, or your back is sore. You should go check out a chiropractor, try it out. And they're like, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know chiropractors. Like, I've heard a lot of weird things about those crazy kooks. Like, it's just, it's such a lack of... They call them quackapractors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the quackapractors I immediately knew I was talking with another nurse, and she called a chiropractor a quackapractor, and I immediately knew she was an enemy of health. <laughs> <laughs> because it makes perfect sense. Why would you not go to somebody who will do a, an adjustment on you if your back hurts or your neck hurts? That's what you want to do. That's why people twist themselves in their chairs and crack their backs and do that stuff. I mean, it's yeah. like a law against common sense. Like if somebody is, you know, overrun with heavy metals, why would you not? chelate them or do something to pull those heavy metals out. It just doesn't make any sense. And these 
alternative medicines are backed up by science and they do work in a lot of cases. I mean, they're absolutely no worse than than allopathic or conventional medicine, but people will still just, I don't know, it's like a, a superstition. <laughs> well, and there was an article back in 2011 on the science page about how doctors use natural remedies, but they don't prescribe them. And um, it was an interesting study. I mean, it was done in 2011, but it was published in a health services research journal. And they looked strictly at healthcare workers, doctors, and nurses who were more than twice as likely to seek treatment from quote unquote alternative practitioners. Um, mm -hmm. Doctors and nurses were more than three times as likely to tap natural remedies for self treatment, such as herbs, yoga, or exercise. And then a, a Harvard study published in 1990 um, documented a shift to a more natural medicine, finding that people opted for as many as 250 million more visits to alternative healthcare practitioners annually compared to medical doctors. And it said that mm -hmm. studies indicate that the majority of people do not want medicine to vanish. Rather, they want to stay healthy and use medicine as an emergency backup when more radical intervention is necessary, says mm -hmm. Dr. Reichman. So it was kind of like that article in the beginning, you know. Yeah. He was laying your Yeah. Yeah, no, that's like everybody knows that instinctive, like, instinctively. Like they know their practice doesn't work <laughs> for, prevention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> for prevention. It actually creates more problems. And yeah. the results from that study, it's like a clear indication of the reason as to why. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it goes back to the beginning of the article, just like conventional medicine, yes, just emergency room. That's about it, you know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And then chiropractors, they train lots of ears, you know. They're very well prepared, and they know a lot more than, you know, even average doctors. And it's not fair to be a cold quack. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, not at all. But I think there's such a, like you said, Tiff, a lack of common sense. There's such a lack of critical thinking or any kind of, um, uh, you know, motivation uh, to think for yourself. Or even it almost makes me think that people have lost the idea that they are able to learn about these kind of things. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's because if, I think if people thought that they could actually find out what was going on, for basic things, you know, that they would actually mm -hmm. they would look it up and try it. Now, a lot of people are. Um, this kind of movement to understand and use natural cures has been gaining traction for some time, but, um, it, you know, at, at the same pace, essentially, uh, big pharma and what we call conventional medicine, which, again, you know, why, why is it conventional, but that these things are, are going at the same pace as as, as the um, the ideas of, of using natural cures, um, <clears throat> that people have lost their ability to to even look into it because they think that they can't. Um, it's maybe this expert mentality that, oh, well, I need an expert. Well, you do need an expert mm -hmm. for some things, but there are other things that you don't. And it's not to say that you couldn't take the time to study, use your intelligence and your intuition to find out and maybe become an expert in certain things. You know, mm -hmm. um, I found in, in my own experience, and I'm not, I, I would not call myself an expert in, like, home medicine, 
but I have done certain things and looked up information and used it for myself. And now uh, there are some friends of mine who will come and be like, you know, what should I do for this? Like I'm their doctor all of a sudden, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> you need to look it up, man, you know. <laughs> Dr. John, you know, what's my own? <laughs> it's like just, just Yeah, they see, see your results, so they trust you just by then, you know, because you, you're – you are healthy or you recover from this or that problem that the doctor didn't solve, you did your own research. So that's what people, you know, that's the kind of um, examples we all should be showing, you know, be your own, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> healing worker. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And well, like you mentioned, to, Jonathan, to... uh, people feeling that they need an expert to tell them what to do. That's one thing. And I think another thing is that people are scared and people are just ignorant, not to use that in a bad way, but ignorant of how their body works or they don't trust that their body can actually get better on its own without all these major interventions. Mm -hmm. um, I know I've never been sick and never gotten well. I've always gotten well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've been sick a few times and my body always bounced back. So, I have mm -hmm. faith that my body knows what to do. I may not know how exactly how every single thing works, but I know that my body can take care of itself as long as I give it the right tools. And I like to biohack as much as the next guy, but I know enough to not do stuff that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's like a lot of, of faith. Uh, I, I was just going to say, it's like yeah. a lack of faith in the body's own um, innate mm -hmm. Uh, ability to heal itself. It's like, I think, and I think this perspective really does get encouraged. Um, you see it in the media. You see it in, uh, um, well, I mean, the media in particular, like uh, on the TV and in the magazines and things like that. It's like all that's encouraged is the take a pill mentality. Like they, there is no kind of understanding that, wait a minute, you, your body is incredibly intelligent and can actually heal itself of a lot of these these things. Like you were saying, Tiff, I've never gotten sick and then not gotten better. It's like it knows mm -hmm. what it's doing. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's um it, it, it yeah it's, I, I like to say it's like a lack a lack of faith in your own body's ability. And also like networking, you know, and research, you should never be discouraged. You know, I know some physicians take that line. Oh, don't look it up on the internet. You know, you're gonna get yeah. scared. Or, yeah. And that's absolutely crazy because. Even just because of the corruption of science by Big Pharma, there is even great research in conventional medicine that gives results. But, you know, doctors will not be able to find it because it's not on their daily talks at the clinics or hospitals, which are all sponsored mm -hmm. by Big Pharma. Or, mm -hmm. you know, it creates division as well because then people in the scientific community will not look into this research because they mistrust completely conventional medicine without, you know, completely black and white thinking while it still can have its applications. So I think people should understand that, you know, in the end, like, yeah, you should really network and do your own research. Of course, people are very sick and they're going to find these troublesome or tiring, but that's why, you know, a network is needed so we can all help each other and through so we'll witnesses and strengths, but I think it's really necessary, you know, to research and network, share data, mm -hmm. share data and compare, you know. Yeah. And yeah, the, the thing you do is not getting just promoted. for playing Farmville. 
<laughs> it's true. But the things you do see getting promoted in uh, the mainstream media are all the times when it goes wrong. You know, and it's not to say that, that every kind of natural intervention is always going to be successful or that there aren't going to be mistakes that happen, but those are the things that get promoted. Like, you know, this person who died because they were doing, you know, X, Y, and Z natural remedies and they didn't, you know, they, they would forego the kind of conventional treatment and, oh, my God, isn't this terrible? It just show, goes to show how, how dangerous it is to have people just talking about this on the Internet and stuff. You know, and, and meanwhile, those kinds of situations are probably one out of a million you know, where, where other people are very safely able to kind of um, help themselves using, like, natural remedies. So it, it's mm-hmm. just, uh, you know, the, 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 they keep on promoting this kind of viewpoint, this idea that those who don't go with the conventional are wacky, that they're, they're you know, tinfoil hat wearers, and, you know, they all think there's a, a conspiracy of doctors to try and kill them, and they won't go to hospitals and stuff. It's just, mm-hmm. it, 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 it's, you know, they, they, they promote this idea. So then, of course, people are scared. They're scared to actually look into anything other than what their doctor is telling them. Yeah, the fear is a big part of it. Um, I found that too, and I, I think I've mentioned this on the uh, on the show in the past too. But last year, I went to a bout of uh, shingles, and mm-hmm. it was like the way it happened, the way it cropped up was, you know, I got this like weird hockey puck kind of scar tissue feeling thing under the skin on my torso on the left side. And it started to mm. itch. And then, you know, the little rashes started to come out. And I was like, what in the hell is this? And mm. so um, I started to look it up and realized that it was shingles. And then was like, okay, here's a chance, you know, to, to try to treat something um, myself. And so started looking into it. And everybody that I talked to was like, you got to go to the hospital right now. And I was like, no. You know, I mean, yeah, if it was something way more serious, then yeah. Um but, you know, it's it's shingles. It's a, it's a virus. It results in flu-like symptoms and really bad rashes. But, you know, it's not going to kill me. Um, so I was looking up, uh, you know, the various things and realized that, well, the, this virus feeds off of um, arginine mainly in your system. And if you take lysine, you can upset the mm-hmm. balance of arginine. You can avoid arginine-rich foods. You can uh, megadose vitamin C to a certain level, but then also had mm-hmm. to um, look into uh, hemochromatosis and make sure that I wasn't going to have a problem with vitamin C. And so there was all this research that went into it, but um, I knocked well, it out in about three weeks. Yeah. Oh, and it was, um, you, know, you know, normally shingles last over a month, a month to two months with really, really severe pain. And I, I did have pain and I did have itching, but it was nowhere near as severe as a lot of the other cases that people told me about. So I was trying to explain to some of my uh, friends and acquaintances that, like, you know, (laughs) I don't want to brag, but it turned out way better than it had if I had gone to the hospital. Um, (laughs) You saved money, too. (laughs) Exactly. And you learned all these things. It was a really interesting experience. Mm. I think, you know, there are cases where shingles can be life-threatening for older people, for elderly people. Um, And so, of course, every situation is its own context and needs to be taken as such. But for me at that time, it, it worked out, you know. And it, But the point I wanted to make is that it was scary. I was actually scared, and I was like, oh, shoot, you know, this, this might turn out really bad, or what's going to happen? I don't know. But you need a certain element of, um, I don't know, I guess like an exploratory attitude. And like, well, let's just start looking it up and start, looking, mm-hmm. start researching the topic. And I think that's what, yeah. like you said, a lot of people are really afraid to do that because they're like, I'm not going to be able to learn about this. Um, but you can't. Yeah. yeah, 
it's like every every ailment that you have is actually a learning opportunity. You know, it's uh, it, yeah. it's, a, it's a possibility to kind of start researching, learn about it, learn about yourself, all these uh, you know different things. It's, it's that's that's the kind of attitude that you you kind of need to take. It's like okay, I'm being challenged here. Life is challenging me. What can I learn from this? You know, instead of being like, oh my god, I'm freaking out. I need a quick pill to take care of this. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. I think maybe the one of the other things that's being lost, like we're talking about people losing the the ability to do these things, is this idea that everything is a lesson, you know, and everything mm-hmm. has something that can be learned from it. And suffering is necessary. You are not I think everybody kind of intuitively understands that, but once you actually get into the experience of it, it's like you can't go through life without suffering. And so when you're presented with suffering, um, if you don't use it as a lesson and you either you know, whine about it or complain or just evolve into this apoplectic mess where, you know, you just freak mm-hmm. out. Um, you're not learning the lessons that come from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that uh, that, the, that the skeptics really seem to hate, um, and it seems to be the favorite kind of uh, whipping boy for all kind of alternative medicine is uh, homeopathy. And in a way, I can kind of understand it because, you know, I don't know how many, not many people know what homeopathy actually is. It kind of gets, uh, you know, uh, just used as a term uh, that's like synonymous with any sort of natural uh, remedy. You know, people would talk about homeopathy uh, in terms of herbalism and stuff like that, but it actually is its own um, uh, modality. And, you know, it's the, the way that it's done is uh, it's, it's based on the uh, idea that like cures like. So you take a substance to cure an ailment that if you were healthy and you took that substance, it would produce symptoms similar to what you um, have. So by taking, uh, like say, say you have some kind of rash um, and that rash is kind of similar to maybe like poison ivy or something like that, you would take a remedy like poison ivy um, to counteract those symptoms, um, which, you know, to, to mainstream medicine or any mainstream thinker sounds absolutely ridiculous. Like, why would I take something that could possibly cause the symptoms that I'm trying to cure? But it seems that it actually does have a basis. Um, and the way that they do this is they take these remedies and they dilute them. So they'll take something like poison ivy and they'll dilute it. And they don't just dilute it a little bit. They dilute it and they dilute it and they dilute it. Um, until you've got, uh, you know, a remedy that basically has no molecules of the original substance in it. Now, nobody really knows what's going on here and why this seems to work, but it does seem to work. That's the that's the thing about it. But, um, you know, to, to any mainstream thinker, they think, you know, for in order for something to work in the body, there has to be a substance. There has to be something working there. You know, it has to be uh, connecting with receptors in the body in some way. But um, but it seems that diluting these things actually makes them more powerful. So of course, like the, the mainstream skeptics are like, this, this is just this is witchcraft. There's absolutely no way that taking something that has no molecules of the substance could possibly be working. And yet there is so much. Um, there's studies, but there's also like just anecdotal evidence. This has been used for hundreds of years and seems to be actually, um, you know, people. It's it, it goes well beyond the placebo effect which is what uh, the skeptics love to say, oh, it's just placebo. Um, so it seems to be, there, there's actually an article on uh, SOT called uh, Why Skeptics Love to Hate Homeopathy. And it's written by uh, Amy Lansky, who uh, wrote a book called The Impossible Cure, um, which is a great book. I'd, I'd highly recommend anybody uh, 
uh, read that one. It, she talks about how she is actually able to cure her um, her son's autism using homeopathy. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I I just think that this one it's like kind of held up as the ultimate um, you know quackery when uh, you know I've had a lot of success with homeopathy myself. So yeah. Yeah, and to kind of add to that, Doug, there's a um, a great article that was carried back in 2011 called Homeopathy, Me- Modern Medicine's First Target. And mm-hmm. and they talked about how, how um, you know, homeopathy, the Samuel Hahnemann, right? Is that how you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, um, so he tested his medicine on volunteers. And basically, the article says this was the first evidence-based medicine and by 1900s, homeopathy was um, considered a uh, relatively old m- medical tradition. And at the time, 43% of medical schools taught homeopathy, including one of the best medical schools in the world. That um, mm-hmm. the homeopathic homeopathic formulations could be purchased through, like your Sears catalog, by individuals who wow. wish to care for their own health, and um, and then all of a sudden the profession started to suffer from infighting complacency and the rise of big pharma mm-hmm. and um, opposition from the modern scientific medicine. And in the, the AMA was formed in 1847 to improve ethics of medical practices and to put out of business those who engaged in traffic in secret remedies and patent medicine. Um, Mm. And it says in the article that homeopathy gained the unforgivable label of quackery. Mm. And in in the final part, he said there was two other important reasons for the disdain of homeopathy by doctors. The idea that a person's illness was uniquely individual and the fact that its remedies were inexpensive. The short story about homeopathy could just as easily be applied to the fields of chiropractic, osteopathy, Mm -hmm. acupuncture, nutrition, massage, naturopathy. So what is common among the professions listed above is that they cost far less than drugs, surgery, imaging, and lab tests. Mm -hmm. So if our listeners want to get a little read on that, homeopathy, modern medicine's first target. And uh, it was uh, Dr. Harvey Bigslin who, who wrote this article for North Atlantic Books. So it portrays yeah. very well the, the the mechanic the how mechanical it is modern medicine because just because we don't understand how homeopathy works doesn't mean it doesn't work you know just because we're mm-hmm. stupid <laughs> or don't have yeah. the skills or the research doesn't mean it doesn't work it could I've read research you know that it could be related with information theory and there's like very yeah. you know speculation mm-hmm. very well based on research like you know. Maybe perhaps there are no there is no single molecule of the original remedy left, but there is information and the water mm-hmm. molecules arrange themselves around that and they can carry even more information, you know. Mm-hmm. We just don't understand those concepts because it's so you know because we're so mechanical basically. Yeah. Yeah, it completely goes against the kind of the modern method of, of diagnosing and things as well. You know, like a doctor you go in to see a doctor, you'll see them for five, ten minutes maybe, and they write you a script mm-hmm. and you're done. 
Yeah, homeopath, if you go see a homeopath, you're sitting with them for a good two or three hours as they interview you and get every detail of what kind of you're going through, like a complete picture of who you are, everything from the kinds of dreams you're having, the kinds of, um, you know, how you react to uh, different weather patterns, um, you know, what your psychology is, what your emotions are, all these different things, they, they have to look at the entire picture. And from that entire picture, they kind of like find the, the symptoms that really stand out, and then they choose a remedy that's based on that. Um, you know, like comparatively speaking, like a, a doctor would never spend two or three hours with a patient. Like that's just insane. They don't, they don't have time to do that. Mm-hmm. They've got, uh, you know, a lineup of all these, these patients that they have to see. So they're not really getting a picture of who you are as a person. They see one symptom and they find a way to kind of suppress that symptom. That's, that's the entirety of it. Whereas a homeopath is like, I want to see this entire person, a picture of the whole person. And, you know, People who take the homeopathic remedies might go in for one thing, like uh, like I mentioned, a rash or something like that, or mm-hmm. um, maybe they've got a, de- a, a depression or something like that, and they'll find that all kinds of their symptoms start to disappear, stuff that they didn't even necessarily notice, like, you know, my, my ankles always click when I, uh, you know, when I walk, and suddenly they take this remedy, and it's not even what they were trying to address, but that goes away. So it's like it's treating the entire person. It's a very holistic kind of method. So and then, what have you, know, you used it for? Sorry? What's your experience with using homeopathy? Um, yeah, well, mine was, <laughs> I was, I was kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always pretty gung-ho about stuff and reading about things and, and wanting to experiment on myself, which I don't necessarily recommend for people. Uh, I think, you know, if you do want to try homeopathy, you should probably see a homeopath. But I, I, I actually borrowed this book off a friend of mine called Homeopathic Psychology, and um, I was kind of what it, what it was was basically looking at the different remedies and and what sort of psychological picture they um, um, are in tune with and what what they're kind of treating. Um, so yeah, it's like basically kind of personality types and how they fit with different remedies. So I was reading through the book and kind of making notes and, and saying, oh, you know, that one's kind of like me. I do have that, but that doesn't really match and that doesn't fit. And then I got to one remedy and it was kind of like I was reading my biography. It was like exactly <laughs> me. I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is me. This is absolutely me. So um, I ended up kind of uh, buying the remedy, uh, taking that remedy, and certain things definitely started to improve. Like I used to uh, suffer from kind of periodic nausea. I would be so mm-hmm. nauseous at times, like I would wake up in the middle of the night and be really, really sick, and I'd have to kind of like uh, make myself some peppermint or some ginger tea or something like that and just kind of sit there and sip on it and, and just to, to kind of relieve it and, and be able to go back to sleep. Um, and that went away once I started taking the remedy, mm-hmm. um, which wasn't even necessarily what I was looking for, but I actually ended up looking up the, the, uh, the different things that the remedy was, was meant to treat, and that was one of them. It was like, uh, you know, severe nausea. I was like, oh, okay, so I, I guess I kind of got a good match there. Um, but anyway, eventually I was kind of like, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. I better go and see a homeopath. And, uh, uh, and they confirmed it, actually. They were like, yeah, that is, that is your remedy. So, um, yeah, so I've, I've actually been taking that remedy periodically ever since, and I've, I've found it to be very helpful, especially for kind of, you know, whenever I'm feeling kind of off balance and, you know, maybe going into more dissociative states and, and uh, you know, maybe just not quite with it, not feeling quite there. I'll take the remedy, and it kind of brings me back to balance. And, and yeah, I've, I've, I've had a lot of success with it. That's very good detective work, you know. That's yeah. What you call, yeah. What, that's what's needed to fight against cognitive biases and the laziness, you know, the brain pain of 
doing the least effort. And that's great. You know, pure detective work. Yeah. Well, I do recommend that people kind of, you know, it, it that kind of approach can work, I think, for, for people. But you kind of have to know yourself pretty well and kind of be... Mm-hmm kind of be have the ability to kind of look at yourself um you know in an unbiased manner to to really be willing to see kind of the your flaws and and not kind of look at, at yourself from kind of the um the you know we we all have a tendency to see ourselves in the best light and to kind of justify all our different actions in different in uh you know have we have these narratives that kind of are always like, you know, I'm perfect. So, um, you know, it was everybody else's fault or something like that. So you kind of have to, in order to do this kind of detective work, I think you need to, to kind of be willing to look at the darker side of yourself. Well, that kind of relates to what we talked to, talked about last week about the shadow self and how you need to integrate Mm. that and address it. And maybe one of the reasons why alternative medicine like homeopathy or botch flower remedies are helpful because it requires you to actually do detective work and actually delve a little bit into your psyche and actually take matters into your own hands. And Mm -hmm. that probably changes your mindset, which starts you on the path to healing. And then the alternative remedy or herb or something, it kind of lends a hand. But I think people who generally try to follow alternative methods of healing are probably a tad more curious than the average person out there. Mm-hmm. And so they'll like, mm-hmm. uh, take the impetus to kind of research and do things for themselves. So I think just that alone helps them get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Doug, when you were talking about the, uh, the like treats like aspect of homeopathy, that made me think about, um, the uh, using uh, organs to treat certain organ conditions and, uh, you know, using mm-hmm. uh, bone to treat and things like that. And I was first introduced to this concept by um, Dr. Tent, who uh, I think we we have talked a little bit about before. And if anybody hasn't come across Dr. Tent, look him up on YouTube. He's got, I think, like 40 lectures on YouTube, and they're all really good. Um, he's a chiropractor and a natural practitioner in Michigan, in like the Detroit area. And uh, he talked a little bit about what are called uh, protomorphogens. And this is a concept that was come up in the, come up with in the 40s by a man named Dr. Royal Lee, uh, who was the founder of Standard Process, um, the vitamin company. And uh, <clears throat> he posited that cells from certain organs contained the blueprint for the restructuring of that specific organ. Um, mm-hmm. So that if you have a problem with your liver, you take liver. If you have a problem with your kidneys, you take kidney. You know, teeth, mm-hmm. you take bone, things like that. Um, and uh, one of the things that really struck me uh, was uh, a story that, that Dr. Tent told about uh, Sacagawea and the Lewis and Clark expedition. And in the journals um, of Lewis and Clark, there is this conversation that they had with Sacagawea. And she was, at the time, 17 years old, and she had a newborn baby, and she was feeding the baby raw brain and raw bone marrow. And they said, why are you doing that? And she said, well, the brain is so that he'll be smart, and the bone marrow is so that he'll be strong. And mm-hmm. she, you know, she hiked with these seasoned explorers nearly 2,000 miles across the entire country at 17 years old with a baby on her back. So if we really needed any anecdotal evidence about the strength of that kind of a person, you know, 
I think that was pretty interesting. But um, also in Tent's experience with this kind of thing, uh, he had uh, in the uh, in the animal world, um, he had a, a patient who had come in and said, "My my parrot has eye cancer." So this this bird had <laughs> ocular cancer and. The eye was like bulging out of its head, and you know it was really bad. There was a tumor underneath the eye, and he's like, "Well, I'm not a vet, you know, but give it eye, give it eyeball." And so they looked it up and found where they could order essentially dried powdered eyeball. I think it was bovine huh. eye, and um, she fed it to the bird, and it was it was cured, and the, the eye cancer went away. And he had also had similar experiences with human patients where. Um, he had patients who had gone through, like one guy had liver cancer, I think it was even stage four, had gone through a bunch of treatments, had gone through chemo and all these kind of things. And he was like, I'm here, last resort, what do we do? I'll try anything. And he said, well, just start eating liver. And so he started feeding him raw liver, and it went into remission. Mm-hmm. Um, you wow. know, so there's, that's just two stories about that. But there's a lot of really interesting things, I think, in that area. It's fascinating to me um, along the lines of, Gabby, what you had said about information theory, you know, the idea that these cells from specific organs could contain the information that's needed to rebuild that organ. And mm-hmm. that, you know, we may, we may just be going around, going, going about this whole healing thing in the entirely wrong way with a lot of the pharmaceuticals and the radiation treatments that we're talking about for different illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's been known for thousands of years that, um, you know, if you have a problem with this, you take that, and that helps that. The like treats like. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's it's really fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 There's a long history yeah. of uh, using organs uh, in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, they, you know, for thousands of years, they've been treating uh, specific organ ailments with uh, the specific organs. Um, so yeah, there's there's a long history of that type of uh, that that type of um, um, holistic healing. I was just going to say real quick while we're going over some anecdotes, but there was another really interesting one from uh, Dr. Tent that, that came to mind. Um, there was a professor in, I think it was Texas, who um, was having um, uh, basically toxicity. Like he was getting really sick and they determined that his body was building up toxins and they couldn't figure out why. Um, they brought in all of the, I think they brought in like five major doctors from different large hospitals around the country uh, to look at this guy. Nobody could diagnose what was going on or help him. And um, finally, you know, again, with the whole alternative thing, as kind of a last resort, they brought in a, uh, a Chinese doctor who was practiced in ancient Chinese medicine. And he took one look at the guy and he said, what are you taking? And one of the medications that the guy was on um, was a... Uh, I forget the exact name of this, but it blocked the detox pathways in the liver. And he mm. discovered that this this professor who was kind of like a natural, you know, I guess I'll say like hippie kind of dude, would walk around mm. campus barefoot. And it turned mm. out that he was absorbing the, the toxins from the fertilizer uh, and the pesticides mm. that were on the grass mm. on this college campus through his feet. And because he was taking a medication that blocked the detox pathways in his liver, they were building up those toxins from the grass in, in his liver and made him sick. And so they got him off that medication and he got better. And that was it. You know, it was like, and 
major doctors couldn't figure that out because they couldn't get themselves into the mindset of like, let's just look at logically what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Has anybody so, ever tried acupuncture? We have, no. Uh, I did a little bit. That sounds like quackery to me. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not bad. It's just just the needles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I had a small experience with it. I um I was uh, um I I did a a service exchange with with an acupuncturist. So um I did some kind of nutritional counseling for her, and she did some acupuncture treatments on me. Um, I wasn't trying to uh, address anything in particular, so I, I, I'm probably not the best uh, person to kind of, um, you know, hail uh, acupuncture, the, the, the benefit of her. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I noticed a little bit, like, you know, maybe a greater sense of well-being that lasted, uh, you know, for a couple of days after the treatments, but uh, not, nothing specific. Well, it's kind of like homeopathy and that it kind of works on the energy in the body maybe um mm-hmm. the thing i can't understand is it's supposed to be like over 2500 years old and the chinese doctors were able to tell that long ago that there are these energy channels or chi channels that flow through these uh, like meridians through the body mm-hmm. so how did they find that out? I just don't understand mm. how they could have done that. I mean, we can't even do that now. So mm. where did they get this information from? But I guess the whole point of acupuncture is to, uh, through these little needle sticks, um, to increase blood flow, increase muscle relaxation, and to reduce pain. And you work on, like, certain areas of the body, like there's 12 major uh, organ systems um, divided into fire, earth, metal, water, and wood. So fire has the heart, the pericardium, and the small intestine, and something called the triple heater, which is like your body's natural thermostat, even though it's not technically an organ. And the earth has the stomach and the spleen. Metal is lung and large intestine. Water is kidney and bladder, and wood is liver and gallbladder. So you kind of like use this yin-yang relationship, like what affects one organ in one of these elements affects another organ in the element, but I still can't figure out how it really works. So people swear by it and they get relief from it. So mm-hmm. there's got to be something that we just don't understand. Yeah, I, I think that's the, like the, the ancients knew much more than we do. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when it yeah. comes to, you know, information field type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that. Recently an article that came out about ancient knowledge confirmed acupuncture very effective at treating hypertension and blood pressure. So like you're saying, Tiffany, it makes sense that, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, the article was talking about how acupuncture regulates blood pressure, blood flow and body temperature and uh, patients were treated with acupuncture experience drops in the blood pressure that lasted up to a month and a half mm-hmm. and um, yeah so it, it, and then it was um, the reports of side effects showed that acupuncture works uh, editor of a textbook fundamentals of complementary alternative medicine and executive director of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia 
says people need to understand that part of taking alternative medicine seriously is to look at and understand the side effects. Mm. Oh yeah, mm. it's it seems to be another one of those little things that you can add to your uh I don't yeah. even like to use the word alternative because you know, mm. but uh, to your toolkit for mm. for you know, I looking at other I recently read about it in Why Can't I Get Better by Richard Horowitz, which is all about Lyme's disease and co-infections, people that are really very, very sick. He had a case of a person who was so disabled, neurologically speaking, that he was in a wheelchair and he could not move his legs from these co-infections. And um, he recently hired a Chinese doctor, you know, who who did acupuncture, but combined with something else, with acupressure or some kind of technology. And um, she said that she could fix anything, you know, in her, in her broken English, you know, I can fix anything. So <laughs> here goes Dr. Horo is thinking on his mind, let's see if you can fix this. Well, we'll be sharing the patient in, in her office. And, you know, Later, when he, get, he the Chinese doctor called Dr. Horowitz, the patient had like 60 needles on his leg, but he, he was moving the leg, you know. And wow. so he was like, yeah, exactly like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and he hired her, you know, as part of her staff, you know, for complementary therapies in life. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The Chinese medicine is very interesting, but it's it's one of those things, it's kind of like homeopathy. It really requires mm-hmm. you to look at things from a very different perspective than we're used to looking at it. And you know, I've I, you know, just being a holistic practitioner, I've come across um different Chinese medicine things. I I actually taught new uh western nutrition at a Chinese medicine school. Um, and the way that they look at things is so completely different. It's very metaphorical and um it's it's a very difficult thing to kind of dabble in. Like there's a few things that we can take from it, like, you know, the, their herbalism can be very helpful and, uh, you know, their organ therapies and things like that. But it's one of those things that to really, to really benefit from it, you have to find somebody who knows it well, who's been studying it for a long time, who has lots of experience with different patients because um, – because yeah, it's not it's not the kind of thing where you can just kind of be like, well, I'm going to try traditional Chinese medicine approach because it really does require <laughs> such a different view of things. Like a really like you know one organ system affects another organ system and that one affects this one and you know you have too much heat in this area or too much dampness in this area. It's like it's really like well, what what does that mean? Like you have dampness in your colon. Okay, what what does that mean? <laughs> dampness in my colon. Like how do I get rid of that? You know, do I need to start taking fire enemas or something like that? Like that's crazy. So it's yeah, it it, it really does. to be dampness dry. Well, I mean, a lot of people actually say dampness in the colon relates to candida overgrowth. That that might actually be what they were talking about, but they had a, a, a such a different way of looking at it. Like a lot of times when they talk about kidneys in uh, in Chinese medicine, apparently what they're actually talking about is adrenals. So it, mm-hmm. it, it requires like a, a very different perspective and a and a way of kind of translating what what you're actually seeing there. In Western terms, mm-hmm. yeah. For Jeff, all we know, the, uh, they. To... No, go ahead, Benison. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, I think to the point about how did they figure out these kind of things, you know, maybe mm-hmm. thousands of years ago, that 
they were lacking in this unholy kind of trifecta of toxins, uh, you know, like we, uh, of, you know, for the body, for the mind, for the spirit, um, the way we see now, we have so many industrial toxins for our body. We have a bad diets. We have pollutants. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have EMF. Um, and then, you know, we have the, the dampening of our kind of creative spirit by the media, by mm-hmm. psychopathy and the way that all of these things have kind of come together. Um, that yeah. our society right now is really sick, uh, you know, on a, on a whole. Mm-hmm. And that um, I think back if you were to remove a lot of these aspects and if you were eating healthy, you were lacking EMF, and you were able to lead like a peaceful, contemplative life, um, that you would mm-hmm. be able to get in touch more so with the uh, the natural kind of intuitive capabilities and discover things. Yeah. And that's probably how they did discover those things, because they were sort of unrestricted yeah. in a way. Yeah, they're so unrestricted. They have this time to do these things, and they can sit around, and they can just observe nature and ponder how things in nature really work and apply mm-hmm. that to human beings and their bodies. So I think that's a lot of the way that they did it. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of observing nature, I wanted to mention Bach <laughs> because we've mentioned him quite a few times, and for people who are interested there's a really good book out called Practical Uses and Applications of Botch Flower Remedy Flower Emotional Remedies by Jessica Bear, who's a naturopath. And uh Dr. Edward Bach was a physician, a bacteriologist, a homeopath, and a researcher in the UK. Um he had two passions in life that were overwhelming for him, compassion for mankind and his love and for nature of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Little did he know that his two great compa- compassions would combine and mature as one. So um, he was always inquiring and uh, researching and prying and studying, and his father was a doctor, and um, so he was always searching and questing for new ways of making medicine painless. He's kind of uh, famous for discovering what's called the seven nosodes, N-O-S-O-D-E-S, and it's basically a type of intestinal bacteria that is used as a vaccine in the approach of uh, helping chronic illness. The discovery of the nosodes was Bach's first glimpse and insight that the different personalities of the bacteria seem to relate to the different personalities of his individual patients. He was surprised and, and amazed as he monitored the rates of patients' recovery based on their personality, and he watched carefully for signs of changes in their attitudes and recovery, whether or not the patient took control of their own life and how each patient dealt with their inner conflicts. Bach spent many years in hospital wards studying and analyzing his patients, and it was at this time that he started to come to the realization that the personality and the attitude of the individual seem to play a more important role in the recovery than the medical treatments. Wow. The base, the body was receiving information from the disease, and Bach noted patients who were not recovering. With further study, he recognized that the personality attitudes of the non-healing patients seemed to be holding them back from recovery and healing. So in essence, he discovered that disease was the result of a conflict between the soul, the mind, and the body. 
And if this premise holds true that medical physical methodologies never could or would totally eradicate the disease, either within or without the body. So Bach felt that this disease, though seemingly cruel, was beneficial and good for the patient. Bach's pervading mm-hmm. sentiment was that the physicians and patients must seek within themselves to find the origin of their disease or illness. He felt that medicine needed to be more natural and kept within the realms of nature. So in 1930, he returned to nature and the land that he loved and um, where his discoveries and studies led him to his flower remedies. He studied great healers, especially um, homeopathic healer Hahnemann, and he developed 38 flower remedies. Um, It had a saying, treat the cause, not the effect. And one of his most famous Mm. remedies is rescue remedy. And so it's very popular. Uh, You see it in health stores. They make tablets Mm. and um, salves to put on your body, sprays. And um, basically, it's a it's what he called an emergency combination containing five flower remedies, and the flowers are impatience, star of Bethlehem, cherry plum, rock rose, and clematis. Mm-hmm. And um, I've used rescue remedy extensively, um, and I found that. You know, maybe, again, it's that idea that I'm going to take this rescue remedy and it's going to calm my nervous system or I'm going to feel better. But I definitely think that there is something to these flower flower essence. Um, we were talking before the show, and I used to give it to my children, one of his remedies um, called Holly, like a Christmas holly, mm-hmm. and it was for yeah. jealousy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, you, you you get kids and they argue and fight, and I would carry this little holly remedy around with me, and um, I definitely noticed that when I would give it to them, they would uh, definitely calm down and not be so jealous of each other. So that's just my mm-hmm. little antidote that's, of the box. <laughs> that's very interesting. And I, also, I read about, sorry, I was just going to mention oh, about holly. You know, the whole, yes, because uh, I read the experience of fast flowers through Radical Cure, which is a book written by Rudolf Valentine, and he has also a lot of experience with uh, with these flower essences. And Holly is one, uh, is the first one he tried, and apparently was also the first one back, uh, back, bash, <laughs> to try it. And he says that the leaf of holy is just like, it is spiky, you know, but it, it curves down and inwards. So it talks a lot, it talks about the essence of these flowers. And it's basically the generic essence flowers uh, to be given when there is negative impulses, hate, jealousy, self-hatred. And um, and he was surprised with the results he had because, you know, people started to be more compassionate, external considering, you know, like be more um, polite towards people, considering their feelings, like they boom, literally. <laughs> so mm. I thought that was very interesting. Yes. Yeah. Has anyone else used, ha- uh, has it yeah, tried I any? Say I use uh, Rescue Remedy on my cat um, fairly, fairly often. 
and it definitely seems to work. Like when he's getting really anxious and kind of weird about stuff, he he has a thing where he uh, he he tends to like really um, work on his eye. Like he'll he'll like just be pawing his eye a lot, and like to the point where he actually is losing fur off of it um, because he gets so anxious. So I'll just put a couple of drops of rescue remedy into his into his water, and that seems to kind of curb that thing. Like it it seems to get get rid of his uh, his anxiety. So yeah. One other that I've used. Oh, go on, Gabby. No, what others have you used? (laughs) Oh, I've used impatience, which is which is actually in the rescue remedy. Um, You Mm. know, nobody likes to wait in line at all, whether it's (laughs) at the the Department of Motor Vehicles or the bank. Well, I used to be a very impatient person, and even with with my kids when they were getting the holly, I was taking the impatience. And basically, it is what it implies. It's it's for those impatient. You know, obviously, you don't want to drink coffee and then take the the rescue or the the remedies. But um, I found uh, a lot of relief from the impatience remedy, and that's one of the different flower remedies. Yeah, there's actually lots of different remedies out there right now. Um, they have they have different flower remedies. There, I know there's another um, company called FES that's kind of continued the work of Botch, like by doing all kinds of other different types of flower remedies. But they've got all kinds of things now. There's a um, here in Canada we've got one called Canadian Tree Essences, where they actually take different trees native to Canada and they they make essences from them. There are gem essences as well. There's one called Living Light, um, which uh, they they do uh, um, make remedies based on gems. Um, there's there's other ones too. There's Australian flower essences. There's so many. There's like a lot of different flower essences at this point. So all kinds of different things that you can kind of experiment with. I yeah, this makes me wonder think, if you weren't so cut off from nature and you didn't spend time like hugging trees and sniffing the flowers, <laughs> would you even need a Bach remedy? <laughs> so maybe the remedy ultimately is to get your ass outside and go on a hike <laughs> and roll around in the in the prairies. <laughs> That's the thing I find fascinating because it requires like observation, intuition, you know, and also mm-hmm. a lot of self-work on your emotions to figure out the right remedy. Just reading through Rudolf Valentine's uh, clinical experience and how he describes flowers and in which cases he applies them, you know, it made me like want to try a couple of remedies myself. Mm-hmm. And I read about, for example, aspen, which uh, the leaves are, you know, they tremble very quickly with the minimal amount of air. So it's actually mm-hmm. given for people who are very nervous and anxious. Mm-hmm. Then wild oat, as the name suggests, you know, it's given for people who cannot assume responsibility or cannot concentrate. <laughs> and after yeah. reading about walnut and start of Bethlehem, Star of Bethlehem, which tries to let go past trauma or any stagnating feelings related with trauma, and mm-hmm. Walnut, which is supposed to protect you, it protects you against negative influences and also allows for change, you know. And I read it and I thought, well, this is fascinating. I'm gonna do some bash of flowers to palliate my hurt reactions from my protocols, antimicrobial, antimicrobial protocols. And I gotta say that yeah, it does seem to work. <laughs> mm, yeah. Wow. Cool. Well, we'll have to report back later. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
just wanted to bring up real quick. Um, about, oh, go ahead, Jess. Does anybody know anything about craniosacral therapy? I cried it. Yeah, I've not had any experience with it personally. I have a, a couple yeah. of friends who have, and they said that it was really effective on, on, on them. I had it with my rolling mustache, so I don't know which one worked. It did work, definitely, <laughs> but. <laughs> so that's like a head massage, right? Yeah, like they move your head the, massage. They move the bones of your skull around a little bit. Or, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The impression I get is very subtle, like chiropractic for the head, skull, and it, and the sacrum as well. It's kind of like aligning the uh, the cranium with the sacrum in a certain way. Like you know, you kind of get off alignment, and then that can uh, have all kinds of um, uh, like psychological type effects. So it's kind of you know rebalancing that that communication between the two. Yeah, I just read a little snippet about how people think that the those. Uh, the bones of the skull are completely fused by the time you're an adult, but I read that they they move in very small and subtle ways, and they can be ma- manipulated and they respond to energy, which brings us back to energy. Like a lot of these things are based mm-hmm. on energy. I think that's going to be the next big thing. If big pharma doesn't kill us all, because <laughs> uh, there's a lot of you know. Uh, researchers that are talking about information theory and field theory and how we're energy beings and we need to reconnect with the earth. And that's one of the reasons why EMF is so incredibly bad, worse than a lot of people think. But I think energy medicine is going to be one of the the big things if we are not all dead first. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so the, the craniosacral therapy kind of made me think of that was uh, another thing that, um, Again, referring to Dr. Kent, where he has uh, had a couple, actually quite a few issues with his patients with the atlas, which is um, at the base of the skull and the top of the spine, actually moving out of place and pinching the brain stem and causing a lot of uh, symptoms that were then diagnosed by kind of mainstream doctors as um, even, you know, even extreme as uh, palsy. Um, but uh, also diagnosed as many other types of diseases that resulted in um, paralysis, numbness, chronic migraines, things like that. And he had this specific technique that he had been taught um, to move the atlas, which it looks really dangerous when you see it. He demonstrates it at one point, and you're like, holy crap, Um, you know, how could somebody's head actually move that way? But he does, and it, it moves it out of the way, and it stops pinching the brainstem and just completely alleviates all these symptoms. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. And I think, Doug, what you said about that, like kind of micro-chiropractic for the skull um, is a really interesting idea. It's something I'd be curious to check out, but I've never had a time. Yeah. So well, let's... Um, we're about at the time here to go to uh, Zoya's pet health segment, so let's check that out uh, for a little while. And when we come back, uh, we will have a recipe for one of the batch uh, flower remedies, um, so you can kind of experiment with that. And uh, Zoya is going to talk to us today about um, farm abuse. Uh, so here's Zoya, and we will be back after this. <laughs> Hello, and 
welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I'm going to share with you a very important talk by Wayne Paisel. He's a president and CEO of the Humane Society of the United States, and he's talking about animal factories and the abuse of power. I mentioned this topic several times in the past, but it requires reiteration since it is so important. We simply can't ignore it and can't accept it. So here it goes, Wayne Paisel. Thank you, Lori, and thank you, Diane, for inviting me, and thank you, all organizers, for including the impact on animals when we're talking about food and agriculture. As Lori mentioned, I feel very privileged to serve the Humane Society of the United States. This is our logo, and you can see it consists of 19 different animals in the shape of the country. We work on all animal issues, and we work on a national scale, not just conducting rescue, which is so important, but inevitably deals with the symptoms of the problems, but looking to prevent cruelty and looking at the broadest, biggest issues of our human relationship with animals. And one of the central questions that we confront at the Humane Society of the United States is the incredible moment of contradiction that we live in now in our society. With so many expressions of love and appreciation for animals, but so much cruelty occurring on a vast and industrial scale. You know, I did write a book called The Bond, and the thesis of this is that there's a bond built into every one of us that gives us a head start in doing the right thing for our fellow creatures. All kids have this connectivity to animals, and all of us here at some level have a connection to other creatures. We have so many expressions of this bond and appreciation for animals in our society. Two-thirds of American households have dogs and cats, 171 million dogs and cats. We let our cats on our kitchen tables. We sleep in the same bed as our dogs. There are another 140 or 50 million pets in our households. There are more pets than people in American households. We spend more than $50 billion a year on our pets. Another 80 million of us are active wildlife watchers. We take to the forests and the fields to watch the incredible feats of flight of birds and other creatures and take in the tonic of being in the natural world and experiencing an area that's not completely controlled by humans. You know, these ideas are embedded in our culture. There are 20,000 animal welfare groups in the country. There's an animal group for every kind of animal. There are groups that work on Chihuahua Rescue or St. Bernard Rescue or feral cats or you name it. There are rabbit rescue groups. We uh, run a rabbit sanctuary for homeless and injured rabbits. We say we're providing hope for the hopless. And um, <laughs> there's, an, there's an animal group for every kind of creature. And of course, there are farm animal groups and there are groups that are thinking about every sort of creature in crisis. And we have a nation where the basic notion that cruelty to animals is wrong is already a universal value. All 50 states have anti-cruelty statutes that codify the notion that malicious torment of animals is not just a moral problem, 
It is a legal problem. And it is a felony in 47 states. Cockfighting is a federal felony, and it's now illegal in all 50 states. Dogfighting is a felony in every state. So staging fights between animals, even if you have some sort of interest in that and get some sort of titillation from it, we as a state, as a nation, say no. You're not allowed to do that. We're going to protect the animals from that sort of vice and that sort of entertainment. But what about farm animals? The largest category of animals in use in our society. Ten billion animals raised for food in the United States every year. Ten billion. More animals go through slaughterhouse lines every year in the United States than there are people on the planet. Just as a logistical enterprise, it's an extraordinary sort of thing. And how do we feel about this? I mean, we love our dogs and our cats, and we express you know, all sorts of appreciation, fascination for wildlife, but do we care about farm animals? Well, all of the surveys show that indeed we do. Here's a survey from the American Farm Bureau Federation, kind of the symbol of industrial agriculture through Oklahoma State University, measuring public attitudes toward farm animals. 95% of people believe farm animals should be well cared for. 95%. Every survey shows this, that we care about all animals, including animals raised for food. And you know, we at the Humane Society of the United States don't talk so much about animal rights. We talk about human responsibility. It's really more about us than it is about them. I mean, we need to understand a basic framework when we're talking about animals. That they think, that they feel, that they make choices, that they want to live just as much as we want to live, that they want to avoid pain and suffering just as much as each one of us does. But it's really about our choices. Because in the relationship between us and animals, we hold all the cards. We have all the power. We are the lords of the animals. We make life and death decisions in our society without even casually thinking about it sometimes. The little actions that we take have such consequences for these creatures. And one of the greatest disconnects that exists in our society is our relationship with animals and what we think we believe and how we act in this world. Where animals are not just a sidelight to the human experience, whether we realize it or not, they're at the center of the human experience. And they've always been at the center of the human experience. And are we syncing up our values and our beliefs with our conduct? You know, this is a barren battery cage. 280 million laying hens in the United States, and 95% of them are in these barren battery cages, six or eight birds jammed into a cage. Each bird, under the industry standard, has 67 square inches of space. Now, this is an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper. 8.5 times 11 is 93. So 67 is two-thirds of this page. That's the living space that a laying hen has as the industry standard and norm in our nation for the year and a half that she is alive. A year and a half in this space? I mean, it's as if eight or nine of us were in an elevator for our whole lives. Imagine after five or ten minutes how you'd feel stuck in an elevator. Imagine if you were stuck in there for the whole day or a week or a month or a year or a year and a half. 
I mean, are we this uncreative when it comes to agricultural practices? Are we this miserly? Are we this oblivious to the needs of other creatures to do this sort of thing to them? To confine them in a space where they can't even turn around or extend their limbs? Is that the way we are? Is that the kind of country we are? Is that the kind of people we are? Or take pigs. This is Smithfield Foods. It's one of their farms. We did an investigation, an undercover investigation there. These are pigs in gestation crates. The breeding sows, the females have it worse than in the general sense. These sows are in a two-foot by seven-foot cage. They can take one step forward and one step back. They can't turn around. The only time they get out of that cage is just before they're going to give birth. They're moved into another cage where they are similarly immobilized. And then after a short time with their piglets, then they're reimpregnated, put back into the gestation crate. Seven, eight, nine, ten successive pregnancies, three years, three and a half years in a cage, now, these are intelligent, sociable animals. I mean, is this what we should be doing to them? If we did this to a dog, you could be prosecuted under one of those anti-cruelty statutes. So how do we narrow the gap? How do we address these problems with 10 billion animals? So many of them caught up in this industrial food production system where the animals are no longer animals. They've been turned into meat, milk, and egg-producing machines. They've been genet genetically manipulated to exaggerate certain body parts. They've been moved from outdoor settings where they could feel sunlight on their backs and soil beneath their feet, where they could amble around, where they could interact with others of their kind, and they could have a decent life. Yes, they're going to have at least one bad day when they go to slaughter, but the rest of their life, the rest of their life does not need to be one of misery and privation. And of course, you know, the answer is human creativity and innovation, which has solved so many things and made moot so many past problems through the advance of entrepreneurial activity and imagination. This is an aviary system where these laying hens can actually, you know, to some degree, they can act like laying hens. They can perch and can get up in a high place. They can go to a nest box and lay their egg, they can move around. I mean, what a radical notion that animals built to move should be allowed to move. Or pigs. You know, Fred talked about this. I mean, these animals, they want to be around others. They live in a herd environment, but there are limits to the herd. I mean, you don't press them together side by side. So the ammonia overtakes the atmosphere that they're living above manure that falls between slatted concrete floors. I mean, they should be able to feel some grass or hay beneath their feet. And the science is clear on these issues. I mean, our common sense leads us in the right direction. This is a Netherlands study about a variety of different egg-laying hen production systems. You can see that the cage system, the barren battery cage, on a scale of 0 to 10, doesn't come in at 7 or 8, something that's a little deficient. It comes in at 0. 0. The barn system, again, not free range, comes in at 5.8, and aviary system, the one that you saw, at 5.9. I mean, these incremental improvements, little decisions for us that are entirely inconsequential in our lives, 
mean everything for these animals. Everything for them. Temple Grandin, there was a movie about her on HBO. Here's Claire Danes as Temple Grandin. She says, I feel very strongly that we've got to treat animals right. And the gestation stalls have got to go. The Pew Commission on Industrialized Farm Animal Production took a look at all of these issues that we've been talking about today. And they looked at the issue of the overuse of antibiotics and the manure management systems and the effect on rural communities. And they looked also at animal welfare. And a commission which consisted of a wide variety of stakeholders, including a former USDA secretary, a former governor of a Midwest state, said the commission recommends the phase out of all intensive confinement systems that restrict natural movement and normal behaviors, including battery cages and gestation crates. You know, we've got to have these principles of anti-cruelty, the words humane, they're not abstractions. They're things that need to be put to work in our daily lives. And we have no better opportunity to put them to work in our daily lives with the food choices that confront us every single day. We've got to eat with conscience. Wherever we are on the spectrum, whether we're a vegan or a vegetarian, or we're an inveterate carnivore, we can all make choices that have better consequences for animals. And we've got to change the legal framework. Eight states have recently adopted laws that are urging to ban confinement crates or cages. Prop 2 in California, which was a measure to stop the extreme confinement of laying hens and breeding sows and veal calves, got more votes in a, contest, in, in a contested election than any citizen initiative in American history. People voted for farm animals, even though they were told it was going to cost them more, that there were going to be all sorts of problems and complications. People don't want the animals treated this way. Even the United Egg Producers, the group that was our biggest adversary, has now seen the writing on the wall. It is now jointly supporting with HSUS an effort in Congress to have a minimum standard of care for laying hens, to ban forced molting, to reduce ammonia levels, to require labeling of all uh, eggs in the marketplace, and to double the space allotment for the birds and to give them enrichments. And of course, all of us as individuals can take action. Meatless Mondays is a great, easy way to ease into this. And choosing higher welfare products, which are now more and more available in the marketplace, and we've got to demand that they're more widely available. And urging corporations. We're a capitalist economy. Corporations have an enormous sway on our behavior, the opportunities that we have, all of these companies have taken preliminary steps to, to infuse their supply chain with more humanely produced products. And we've got to spread the word. You know, it's said that, that not a sparrow falls without his maker knowing. We've got to be mindful of all these creatures, every single one of them. Thank you. Yeah, that was a really great talk. I mean, it's uh, 
I think it's yeah. something that, you know, like like I was bringing up with the Joel Salatin interview earlier, you know, we don't think about where our meat comes from. And while I think that there are many, personally, many arguments that can be made for legitimacy of eating meat and of eating animals, mm-hmm. uh, it has to be done um, with kindness and compassion. And, you know, that's a whole nother discussion we could get into is like, how can you kindly kill an animal? But, you know, like I said, that's that's a whole other discussion. But I think that the points that yeah. that lecturer made are, are really important. You know, confining an animal to a space like that for the duration of its life is, is quite cruel and hypocritical. Yeah. yeah. It's terrible. It's like being in solitary confinement for your whole life. Yeah. Well, Tiff, do you want to uh, to give us a recipe on a, on a batch flower remedy that people can play with? Yeah. I'll tackle that. Cool. Um, I've made tinctures before, like herbal tinctures, but I've never made a box flower remedy, but I think it's worth a try. Um, you need to pick a very nice sunny day, bright sun, not a lot of clouds in the sky, um, and choose your flower. You don't want to choose anything like dangerous or poisonous like you don't want to pick belladonna or something like that and make a box flower remedy out of it but if you have like some roses or some what are some other flowers i'm not a big gardener chamomile yeah um lavender even yeah so you want to go out there with this is what i've read you want to go out there with an attitude of gratitude and be like very thankful to the plants that uh, or the flowers that they're going to give their energy to you on this day. So you want to pick only the flower tops. Don't pick the stems or the leaves. Um, so when you pick the flower tops and you cut them off of them, you want to have uh, a bowl of clean spring water or well water or distilled water and put the flowers in the bowl right side up in the water. And then um, let it sit in direct sunlight. So that's the importance of uh, doing this on a nice sunny day. So let the flowers sit in the bowl of water in direct sunlight for two to five hours. And then after that, you want to strain it through some cheesecloth, and you end up with something called the mother. Um, So this is the, the essence of the flowers. And then from the mother, you want to take a dropper and put, 10 drops of the essence in a tincture bottle with either 30% vinegar or 20% brandy. Don't drink the brandy. (laughs) And then you want to succuss it, which is like shake it, like pound it up against your palm in the tincture bottle. That's succussing. And succuss that about 10 times. And then you have your flower remedy. So it sounds pretty simple. And that's it. (laughs) You're on your way to emotional cool. wellness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds pretty simple and definitely worth trying. Flower mm-hmm. remedies can be a little pricey, so it's nice when you can always make your own stuff. And yeah. it also gets you out in your environment to become familiar with your flowers. And as Tiffany said, make sure you do a little research that it doesn't mm-hmm. hold some uh, hazardous mm-hmm. properties. Definitely. Well, cool. Well, that's our uh, that's our show for today. Um, we'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and uh, for all the participants in our chat. Um, 
And uh, I'd like to remind you about the other two shows that are on the SOT Radio Network, The Truth Perspective tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern and Behind the Headlines on Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Um, We're going to have some more good topics coming up, and those are great shows to listen to, so check them out. Uh, And we will be back next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, uh, 4 p.m. Central European time. Um, So please uh, please come back, and uh, we look forward to talking to you guys next week. Thanks very much. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye, everybody. Bye.